Haven't you noticed the, um, the title is basically a question, Why Pray, out of Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Why pray? It's an interesting question, why pray? And some of you probably are asking, why are we even asking that question to begin with? This is a church filled with people who actually believe in God, believe in Jesus, and believe in prayer. So why are we even asking the question, why pray? Well, I'm convinced there's some of us, maybe not in this auditorium, but some of us, today who do not pray simply because we do not believe there is a God, there is a higher authority, there is someone who is reigning and ruling and dictating and controlling all the elements of life. They just simply just do not believe. And so as a result of that, prayer to them is a useless thing. They just simply don't pray. Then there are some of us who probably don't pray because we believe that we're masters of our own universe. We believe there's a God, but we believe that we're the ones that are in the you know, we've got the controls. We're in the driver's seat. We're dictating and determining the outcome of our lives. So why am I going to go to God and ask him? Because actually, I'm afraid that he might sort of intervene into my life and try to tell me to go where I don't want to go or become what I don't want to become. So therefore, I'm just not simply going to pray. I'm just going to, I'm going to go with the flow, go as I please, and I'm just not going to take the time to pray. Then there's some of us who believe in prayer, but we use sort of prayer like a 911 dial on our cell phones. We only pray when we need help. And as long as life is rocking along pretty well and we think we've got the steering wheel and we're pretty much dictating and determining the outcome of our lives and we can handle what life brings our way, we simply do not pray until all of a sudden there's a circumstance or a situation or maybe an enemy has invaded our lives and we just get to that you know, between that rock and that hard place, and we just all of a sudden realize that this is greater than what I can do. And so we dial 911 as a prayer, and we run to God for help. And basically, that's it. Help is what we pray. And then there are most of us in here who believe in prayer, and we believe in God, and we know that we are to pray, but the reality is we simply do not pray as we should. I think all of us in here this morning would probably have to be honest when we would have to say, you know what, I believe in prayer and I believe I could pray more than what I do. Because most of us pray very little at all. Or maybe if we do pray, maybe we don't pray as we should pray and as often as we should pray. Why pray? And Jesus is going to answer that for us today in this passage because there is a time in the life of his disciples when they sought to do something and they failed. Have you ever done that? I mean, you, you've, you, you, you've diagnosed the situation. You have, you know, strategized as a how something needs to come out. And so you figure and you work on a plan and you plan your work and you work your plan and you had great intentions and you had great effort and you had great faith. And yet in spite of all of that, you failed. It didn't work out quite so well. And in the end result was actually more catastrophic than what you were previously in. Well, that's what's happened to the disciples in Mark chapter 9. They have made an attempt, but they, even though, and in spite of their best intentions, their best effort, and, in, and even though they have done what they have sought to do numerous times with incredible success, on this occasion, 
They fall flat on their faces. They embarrass themselves in front of a, a large crowd, and they disappoint a desperate father who has come to them for help, and they have been unable to help him. And Jesus is about to help them understand why they failed. And I'm convinced that most of us in here this morning are not as successful as we should be in living out the Christian life and in engaging the enemy because of a lack of prayer. Let's take a look at the passage and let's understand some very interesting things. There are basically five things that I want to look at here in the regard to why should we pray. Number one, why pray? The reason we should pray is because it in indicates trust. It indicates trust. When we pray, we are telling God and ourselves and those to whom we are praying for, we trust God. I think that's one of the main reasons why sometimes we often don't pray is because maybe we lack trust, faith, confidence in God. Let's look at the text, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. They, meaning Jesus Simon, Peter, James, and John, they have been on the Mount of Transfiguration earlier on in Mark chapter 9. They've had this glorious encounter with Jesus on this incredible mountain. And now they're coming down from the mountaintop experience with Christ, these three disciples, an experience beyond description, beyond words. And they, as they're coming down, looking for the other nine, they find them in an argument with some critics. These critics are defined as, as scribes, these, these scribes, these teachers, these students of the law. They have been there. They have watched what has happened. They have watched and witnessed the disciples fail in their attempt to help this father and this little boy, this young man. And as a result of that, these critics are now pouncing on the disciples. They are relentlessly, endlessly giving them what for because the disciples have failed. And they think they finally got them between that rock and that hard place where they find, aha, we got you. You have tried and you have failed. And you are unable to help this father and this little boy. And the disciples are defending their position and they're giving all kinds of reasons and maybe excuses as to why they've tried and attempted and failed. And the, the scribes, these critics, are not letting up on them. And I can imagine it's someone like many past Baptist business meetings that I have been on on occasion back in my earlier days. In smaller churches, when we begin to disagree with one another, the tempers flare and the words are louder and one tries to overshout the other and they're going back and forth. And so there's this, there's this argument that's going on and it begins to attract a large crowd. And so the crowd is gathering and they're watching this debate between the scribes and the disciples. And it's going, it's bantering back and forth. And Jesus now shows up on the scene and notice, and immediately all the crowd, when they see saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, everything sort of takes a different perspective, doesn't it? And immediately, that's instantaneously, the moment Jesus appears, the crowd who was more than likely looking for Jesus and waiting for Jesus to appear because they knew where the nine disciples were, Jesus couldn't be very far behind. And sure enough, to their surprise and to their amazement, Jesus appears. The reason they're amazed isn't because Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's glowing somewhat like Moses. 
when he had encountered God, but because Jesus is now present. And I think they're amazed at just the fact that Jesus is now there. And they run up to him, and they welcome him. They greet him. They're glad to see him. And then verse 16, and he, Jesus, asked them, who's the them? The scribes, the critics who are pouncing on his disciples. He asked them, what are you arguing about with my disciples? What is the cause? What is the reason why you are arguing with my disciples? Verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about? Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him. I like that because it, it doesn't indicate who it it was right now. It's a, an undefined, undetermined individual. But we are going to learn that this one who steps up is saying, you know, the reason why this argument is taking place is, is I'm the one. I'm the reason. I'm the culprit. I am the one that sort of caused what is happening. And even though he's somewhat innocent in regard to the argument between the critics and the disciples, he's the cause. He's the reason. Actually, really not him, but his son is the reason. But he said, I am the one. What are you argument? I am the one, he said. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. I have a son, and he has a spirit, and the spirit makes him mute. But notice the continued description, and whatever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And there have been many who have tried to somewhat help us understand what the condition of this young man possibly might be in terms that we would understand today. But I'm not all that concerned about the symptoms. I'm concerned about the reason or the cause as to why he's having these symptoms. Why? Because the father has identified the fact that this young boy has a spirit. A spirit. What is a spirit? The spirit that he's describing here is a supernatural being that is inhabiting this young boy, possessing this young boy, and the end result of this domination, the reason this young boy is having these convulsions and these reactions uncontrollably, meaning he cannot control them whatsoever, is because he is possessed by a demonic spirit. So here we have a description of a demonic spirit that is inhabiting, that is possessing, that is controlling, that is dominating, that is enslaving this young boy, so much so that there are physical manifestations that are taking place beyond his control. So he reveals the condition of his son to Jesus. I'm the one, I'm the culprit. Here's the condition of my son. But notice his confession. So I ask your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Hey, Jesus, I came looking for you, but you were nowhere to be found. And so I settled for the next best thing, which is your disciples. And they tried, but they failed. I'm going to say something here. I'm going to say it very quickly because I don't have really a whole lot of time to elaborate on this. But the world that we live in today is not going to find Jesus on their own. They're going to have to find Jesus through us, his disciples. And when they turn to us to discover the power of Jesus, we better not disappoint them. You follow what I'm saying? We better not disappoint them. Because we may be their only hope in finding Jesus, in finding a cure for this cancer called sin that's enslaving them and dominating them and keeping them captive to the enemy and damning them to hell. And they're looking to us for the solution. But notice, 
I ask your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. We're going to come to that in a little bit, but did you notice that the father did what in the beginning? I brought my boy to you. I, I was looking for you, Jesus. Why did the father bring his young boy to Jesus? Because he trusted Jesus to do something about his son's condition. I think one of the main reasons why many people don't pray is simply because of a lack of trust. They just don't really trust God to intervene on their behalf, to resolve their circumstance, to release them from their situation, to help them overcome and to liberate them in the way that they desire. And so they just, they just don't pray because of a lack of trust. But when we pray, we demonstrate, Lord, I trust you. And we lay at his feet our burdens, our, our petitions, our circumstances, our situations. And as we're praying for the empty seats, we lay him before, we lay these before him, trusting him in his time and in his way to provide. When I pray, it indicates trust. When I don't pray, it's because I don't trust. Not only does it indicate trust, but secondly, it invades territorially. It invades territorially. What does that mean? And I want you to take a look at this text. If we look at verse 19 and 20, I want us to understand that prayer, when we pray, as we saw last week, is in fact spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. And by spiritual warfare, I mean that when we pray, we are actually entering into the realm of the supernatural. We are entering into the realm of the supernatural. For Ephesians 6 tells us that we wrestle not against principalities and all these things that we can touch and feel intangible, but what we wrestle with is the supernatural, is the spiritual, is the things that often we do not see. And so as we pray, when we go on our face before God or we bend the knee to our Heavenly Father, we are actually being involved in spiritual warfare. And as we are involved in spiritual warfare, that prayer advances the kingdom of God. And the only way I know to advance the kingdom of God is to advance that kingdom in the territory that right now currently doesn't belong to God, but will belong to God through our prayers. For Satan has territory. Satan has some dominance in this world. Satan has what the Bible calls strongholds that Christ came to abolish. And through prayer, we advance the kingdom of God in invading the spiritual domain of the enemy, and we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Notice what happens in this text in verse 19. And he answered them. He, Jesus, answered to the crowd. I don't think Jesus is answering this to the disciples because he's going to have a time alone with the disciples and he's going to take them to a woodshed privately. He doesn't do this publicly, so I don't think he's, he's really addressing the disciples. The disciples didn't lack faith. They lacked something else because faith alone isn't going to carry you very far. We're going to look at that in a little bit. I think he's addressing the critics who are here and maybe even some of the crowd who have failed to recognize his authenticity or the authenticity of his claims and the authority that he is, in fact, the Son of God and that he has authority over demons and over other elements in the world. 
And they're, they're failing to recognize that. We've studied that through the book of Romans multiple times in the last few weeks where they just were unwilling to see Jesus for who he claimed to be and recognize him as their Messiah and as the Son of God. And he's, he's being critical. He's rebuking them. Notice the condemnation. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? What more do I need to do for you to believe? Are you blind? You know, it's kind of like Forrest Gump's mama said, stupid is as stupid does. How much more do I need to prove to you that I am authentically who I claim to be and I have the authority that I have as a son of God who came to save the world? How much more do you need to see? And I wonder sometimes, how much more do we need to see before we believe? I mean, most of us have seen more than enough to know the power of Jesus. That's why I think sometimes it's good to keep a journal. Because when you're struggling in your faith and you don't see God or you don't see God working it out or you can't, you're waiting and, and you're struggling with faith, you go back to that journal and say, you know, God, God moved here miraculously. He moved here miraculously. Wow, man, look at all these times in my life I've seen God move in miraculous ways. Pretty hard, wasn't it? You hear that? Well, you ought to live with his head. How much more, God, do you have to do before I will finally believe? Notice what Jesus says. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Jesus is not content being at a distance. He says, bring the boy closer up. Let's, let me get close contact with the enemy. I want to get close and personal with him. And we're going to duke it out spiritually in just a minute. And he's, he's going to be engaged on the enemy territory. This is, this is where the enemy now possesses. He possesses this boy. He is in control. He is dominating him, and he is full of nothing but the demon. And, and Jesus said, bring him to me. And so there's, there's an engagement here. There's an invasion of this domain that Satan has. And because of that, notice not just that, but notice in the communication, bring him to me. notice the confrontation of verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. Notice what happens. They bring the boy it's kind of interesting. To, I, you know, I just kind of thought of it offhand as I'm, as I'm looking here. This, this boy didn't have much power in and of himself, did he? He is brought to Jesus by the Father. Now, they bring him to Jesus. I can imagine maybe it was now the time for the disciples to become a part of this. And they, the disciples, brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, the Spirit saw him. I wonder if... Satan and his demons actually see him in us. And immediately, no delay, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. What is this demon doing? The demon is demonstrating his power. He's not intimidated by Jesus whatsoever. You know why? He's gotten a little cocky. 
Well, I have an encounter with your disciples here just a little bit, all nine of those guys over there, Jesus. Remember them? Well, I, I dominated them, man. I put the fear in them. They buckled up. They couldn't do anything about me. They couldn't expel me at all. They couldn't exercise me from the boy. I have gained some footing. I have some ground to stand on. I have a stronghold here, and I'm not intimidated by you whatsoever. Again, I say stupid is as stupid does to be able to say this to Jesus. And that's what Satan sometimes does when we invade his territory. Because Peter said he's like a roaring lion, didn't he? Roar! Why do lions roar? For the same reason Tarzan goes, oh, oh, you know, I'm the king of the jungle, dude. I'm not afraid by your being in my, you're on my territory. And I am the king of the jungle here, and there's no way in the world that you're going to dominate me. And Jesus isn't intimidated at all. And as we bring people to the throne of God in prayer, we see ourselves bringing them into the realm of the spiritual before Jesus. And as we invade that territory, the enemy will come, seeking to intimidate us. Why? Because he knows why we're there. To set captives free. To release people from bondage. And so we understand that when we pray, as we saw last week, we are entering into a spiritual realm in which the enemy is occupying that territory, and we are there as foot soldiers of the king, Jesus himself, reclaiming what belongs to Christ. It is he who made them, and they belong to him, not the enemy. Number three, prayer ignites faith. Prayer ignites faith. We all struggle with faith. Can we admit that? Turn to your neighbor and say, you struggle with faith. I know it. You do. You didn't say that to your neighbor. Why is that? Because you know that you struggle with faith. We all struggle with faith. Why? It, it's a part of life. And I don't know why we do, but we struggle to believe. And that's exactly why we pray is because we pray for faith. Notice in verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has he, this been happening to him? Don't you think Jesus knew the answer to this question before he asked? I, I believe he did. Then why did he ask it? He asked it not because he didn't know, but because he wanted the father to articulate exactly the reason or the timing as to when this happened to the boy to authenticate the miracle that was about to happen. There are some critics there who are being very critical, and they're, they're very disbelieving, and they're going to be hard to convince. And so he's authenticating out loud, factually, in a court of law, what is about to take place. And so he asked the father then, how long? has he been like this and notice he said the father said from childhood and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him notice the testimony of the father he's been like this for how long since he was very young and it often uncontrollably gains hold of him and throws him in the water and into the fire for what purpose what does it say the purpose is for to destroy him May I quickly add this side note? Jesus wants us to understand in this text with his disciples and with us as well that Satan is not our friend. There's no common ground with him. There's no negotiating with him. There's no treaty with him. There, there isn't. He is our enemy. 
And his objective is to do nothing but to kill, steal, and destroy. And he is fighting to the hilt for the life and for the soul of this boy to damn him to hell and to destroy him. And he's not going to give up without a fight because he has a stronghold. And his objective is to destroy the boy. And it's, I can't imagine that this father, it was hard for him to, to, to believe that, much less testify to that to all these strange people here. We have a hard enough time coming down here and making decisions before everybody because we don't want everybody to know our business. But this father is not afraid at this point for everybody to know his business because he's in a desperate state. And his son is doomed to be dead unless Jesus intervenes. But if you can do anything, Take a note of that. But if you can do anything, but if you, Jesus, if you can do anything at all for us, if there's anything you can do, if is the largest two-letter word in the English vocabulary, if you, Jesus, can do anything at all, have compassion. I am appealing to your heart for us. Look at my son. Feel compassion for us, and please come to our aid. Please help us. We are in desperate need, and unless you help us, we are doomed. And my son will be dead. I need your help. And notice then the truth that comes out in this father's confession. And Jesus said to him, notice what Jesus does. If you can. I mean, the father had just said, Jesus, if you can, do anything. Just anything at all. Anything would be better than nothing. Just do something. Relieve a little bit of the pain and the heartache and, and the, just something. Just do something. He said, if, if I can? In other words, he's saying, do you think I can? you really believe I can? If you can? I, 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 let's, let's banter this back and forth. All things due to are possible to those who believe. All things are possible for the one who believes. All is all. Anything is possible for those who believe. Step up the plate, swing the bat, and put your faith in me. And immediately, I mean, this guy's not waiting for the, the, the invitation time at the end of the message. He's not waiting for just as I am. He immediately steps forward, and he, the father of the child, notice he cries out. This is a ha cry out. He cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I struggle to put my faith, trust, and confidence in you, but I have faith in you, but I, I want you to help me with my unbelief. Basically, basically what is happening here is there's some, uh, somewhat of a line in the sand that Jesus is drawing here. Here's a line in the sand, and the guy's over here, and Jesus over here, and he said, if, you, if I can, step over the line and trust me. And he's over here, and the line is here, and you see Jesus, he said, I believe Help my unbelief. He's asking, Lord, give me faith. Help my unbelief. The thing about prayer is this. It is an exercise of faith because we recognize there is a circumstance, there is a situation, there is a, 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 an enemy that is beyond our 
victory. It's, it's beyond hope. It's, we cannot, in and of ourselves, do anything whatsoever about it. And we come completely trusting in Jesus to do something about it. We believe he can, but until we step over and let it go and give it to him, it's not going to happen. We can't pray and trust him and still try to hold on to it and control it and work out the circumstances, situation to be favorable to the way that we want it to be. We've got to leave it at his feet, trusting him completely, stepping over the line, saying, here it, here it all is. This is not going to happen unless you do it. And as I join you in prayer and asking you, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm going to wait on you for your timing. I'm going to keep trusting you in the meantime until finally you release, relieve me from this burden and answer my prayer. It ignites our faith. And when we pray, there's something that happens to the one who does that when they pray. They get up and their faith is stronger than it was before. As was this father's. Number four, prayer invites God be a part of the process. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, why do you think they did that? Paying close attention. <laughs> a miracle's about to happen, man. Jesus is taking, taking hold of this thing, and he's about to do something. And so the crowd comes. Why does the crowd come? They gather to see the miraculous. They gather to see Jesus at work. And I'm convinced this place will be filled when they begin to see Jesus at work here because people want to come and see Jesus at work. They're going to become a part of what Jesus is doing. And so they gather together, run together, and he rebukes them. He takes charge because he doesn't want the father of the boy to be a, a public spectacle. There's no way in the world that we should elevate the miracles that God is doing as the attention grabber. The attention should always be on Jesus and never on the things that Jesus is doing. Let me say that one more time. The thing should always be, our focus should always be on Jesus, not the things that Jesus is doing. And so he takes charge and he rebukes the unclean spirit. He commands it. He takes authority over the unclean spirit. And he says, you mute and deaf spirit, you demon inside of this boy, I command you. Notice the authority of Jesus. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Not I'm going to take you out, but I'm going to shut the door and I'm going to lock it. And there's no way in the world you're ever going to be able to come in again. Which helps us understand, for some of you who are out there, just a quick side note again. I don't have time to talk about demon possessions and all that. But once Jesus sets you free and he occupies your heart and mind and soul with the Spirit of God, you can never be possessed nor dominated by Satan's sin or a demon ever. A Christian, a Christ follower, can never be demon-possessed. We can be demon-oppressed and suppressed, being pushed down and being attacked, but never possessed. Because once the Holy Spirit builds a permanent residence in our hearts and lives, there's no more room for Satan or for his demons. And so we see that I command you, come out and never enter him again. That's the reign of Jesus, his authority over the demon. Notice verse 20, after crying out and convulsing him terribly. What's the demon doing? Still fighting. What a loser. You're not going to win, man. Jesus is the supreme authority. 
He's not going to win, and yet he's still putting up a fight, and Satan is still putting up a fight, and his demons are putting up a fight. But I've read the final chapter, haven't you, in the book of Revelation? He loses in the end. He's a, we used to say, you know, you used to go like this, loser. Remember we used to do that? Anybody, somebody, somebody old, young enough to do that, right? Well, I, you know, my kids, they used to go, you know, they used to go like this, you know, all the time to each other, and Sometimes their dad just kind of antagonizes me a little bit. So, you know, it's a, and then they go like this, you know, this is a loser no matter how well you look at it. So I had a thing. I went like this. I said, this is a loser no matter how you look at it. So never mind. Yeah, never mind. So, I mean, Satan's a loser. But he doesn't stop putting up a fight. And it began to convulse him terribly, and he came out. Notice, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. He's laying there. They looked at him, and they looked at him, and he's, he's not breathing. He looks like he's dead. What did Jesus do? He killed the boy. The demon won. He's dead. And, but Jesus, notice, took him by the hand. He took him by the, by the wrist and the hand, and he lifted him up. This is awesome. And he arose. He's standing next to Jesus, delivered from the demon. The father invited God to be a part of his circumstance. And so must we when we pray. Is an invitation, God, what I'm encountering is beyond my control. It's beyond what I can handle. I'm inviting you. I'm joining you and in inviting you to be a part of what needs to be done. Because unless you do it, God, it will not be done. Number five and final, it ensures victory. When we pray, we are assured victory. Prayer ensures victory. Sounds a little charismatic, doesn't it? A little Pentecostal, doesn't it? But it's biblical. And when he entered the house, not really told exactly what happens after the boy is standing next to Jesus. I can imagine there was an incredible thank you. Man, the father was hugging everybody, and he was wanting to hug Jesus, and he was giving him praise and honor for all that he had done. And his son was set free, and the boy now could talk. He was standing on his own strength, not his strength, but the strength that was given through Jesus. And so there was this incredible celebratory thing, and the, the critics had to leave totally disgusted, and the crowd was amazed. And the, the, the father, can you imagine watching him walk off with his son, you know? They came, you know, kind of like this, and now they're walking, you know, kind of hip-hopping along, excited, telling everybody what had happened. And the disciples and Jesus sort of, sort of kind of pull off of the scene and they enter into a house. We're not told what house it is. There's no identification to this house, but they enter into a house. And it's time for Jesus and just the disciples to, to be in a private moment. And in this private moment, the disciples are dying to ask Jesus. They wouldn't dare do it in public because they were afraid of what it might reveal it afraid of what he might say and they didn't want anybody to know about why they couldn't do it so they waited until they got with Jesus in a private time and they were alone with him and they said in this prayer they asked him why could we not cast it out Jesus we've done it numerous times I mean there have been many 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 times you have sent us out there was times when we came out and said even the 
demons are subject to your authority through us. And man, this is, and they, they have done this numerous times, but this time they did it and it failed. We did it exactly like we did it every other time and it failed. And maybe that's the problem. And as a result of that, they failed and they want to know why. And notice Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but what? The prayer. Hey, dudes, let me, let me be the teacher for a moment and you be the disciples. Let me answer your question. You went through all the routine. You went through all the motions. You said the right things. You even had faith. But you forgot to pray. Jesus was a believer himself in prayer. One last verse, and I want to close with this, in Mark chapter 14. It's not on the screen, so just buckle up and turn in your Bible. You know that thing you got in your hand there. Uh, some of you have leather things, and some of them plastic covers, and some of you have it on your iPhones or whatever phone. But turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Mark, it's interesting, he records three very specific times when Jesus prayed. The first is in Mark 1.35, I believe, where Jesus leaves his disciples to go and pray alone. And he does so to get ready for his public presentation of the gospel that he's about to preach. And he knows the importance of preaching and proclaiming the good news to unbelievers. And so he spends a, a, a very special, very private moment alone with God to pray before he engages in ministry. We then learn in Mark chapter 6, verse 46, where Jesus leaves his disciples early in the morning. It's dark when he does that. And he spends some time in prayer. And when he comes back, his disciples are out on the sea in Mark 6. And it's interesting that Mark 6 says that he was going to meet them on the other side. So he begins to walk on the water, the Sea of Galilee, to meet them on the other side. And when he does, they see him and they think it's a ghost. So he has to stop and has to assure them that it's not a ghost. But the Bible says, check it out, he was going to walk to the other side. He was going to kind of let them meet him over there. So he was doing this miraculous thing and he knew that it was important to pray. And then here in his final revelation, we see in Mark 14, and when... They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on, his, on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch and pray at least one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them asleep. And their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, your betrayer is at hand. Jesus is about to encounter the enemy like he has never encountered the enemy before. He's going to be arrested, tried, convicted, He's going to carry his cross, be nailed to a cross, suspended in the air to die. 
And God is going to just sort of walk away and he's going to say these famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The biggest battle of his life and his ministry on earth was at that moment. The enemy was going to come with all of his force. And he knew that before he encountered that battle, he better pray. We are disciples of Jesus, aren't we? Aren't we? Disciples of Jesus? What does that mean? That means that we live like he lived. We do what he did. We become what he became. And if Jesus, if Jesus, whom we follow, thought it was important to pray before he engaged the enemy, why don't we? We're certainly not better than him. We're certainly not smarter than him. And if Jesus took the time to pray before he engaged the enemy, should we not pray? Maybe the reason we're defeated is because of a lack of prayer. We, like the disciples who went with Jesus to pray, are asleep. We are spiritually comatose. And we are repeating these activities that we've been doing Sunday after Sunday after Sunday like a robot expecting different results. And we all know what that is. That's insanity, isn't it? Doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, expecting different results. And the reason why we're not getting different results is because we're not praying. We're not really praying. And until we become a church and a people who are no longer asleep and counting on these rhythms and these routines to pay off and to yield their dividends so we can put on the greatest show on earth to fill this place and begin to pray, it's not going to happen. Your life will be powerless without any victories. You'll be defeated. You'll not have any any, any progress, you'll not be able to invade the satanic territory around you in your personal life and the life of your family and your friends and your co-workers until we pray. And we must become a house of prayer. Or isn't that what Jesus said his house was? When those sought to make it something for their own personal gain... He said, let it be a house of prayer, wanting us to be a people of prayer. Before we even engage the enemy, see the victories that he wants to have in and through our lives as we join him in what he wants to do through us. The greatest prayer you could pray is the prayer of salvation. So what is the next step for you? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you prayed that prayer? of acknowledging Jesus for who he claimed to be. He is the authentic Messiah, the Savior. I want him to have authority in my life over my sin and to set me free from sin. In that little tear out inside of your worship guide, there is a prayer, that suggested prayer. There's nothing magical about that prayer. It's not a prayer that saves you, but it's Jesus. And if you will pray a prayer similar to that and mean it in your heart, that's your first line of communication with him. And Jesus will do for you what he did to this little boy he will set you free.
I know he will because he did with me. And he wants to do that with you. Maybe another time, another place, your next decision is to publicly follow Christ in baptism. And without any embarrassment at all, like the Apostle Paul, completely unashamed, I want to declare my allegiance and my trust and faith in Jesus and follow Christ in baptism. Do you need to come and make that decision? Maybe like Kristen, you thought you were saved for years. And you're defeated, discouraged, you're dejected. You have no power, there's no authority. Maybe it's because you're not genuinely saved. Or maybe it's simply because you're not praying. And as a disciple, your next step today is, Lord, I want to be a prayer warrior. What is your next step as we close in our service today? Let's pray. Good morning. All right, let's try that one more time. Good morning. Hey, you know, it's always a joy to be able to, to be up here and to be able to celebrate someone's faith in Christ. Oh, they're telling her to breathe. I thought they were telling me to breathe. I'm sorry. Everybody just breathe. It'll be all right. A lot of nerves up here today. And the reason for that is because this is a big step for Kristen. She had uh, believed that she was a Christ follower for many, many years, and then came to realize as she talked to her mothers about her own salvation, and her mother came to grips with the reality that she was not saved, and then professed faith in Christ, and was in these waters just a couple of months ago, she then began to wonder about her own faith. And in that struggle, she realized that she herself was not saved, and so she made a profession of faith and trusted Jesus as her Savior and Lord, and now is exactly that. He is her Savior, and she has committed to Him the Lordship of her life. And so today we want to celebrate the new birth that took place last week, and it was our joy to be able to be the first to get to know this wonderful experience that she had when she came to our house and on that Thursday, Thursday night, and we had a long discussion. And so it's our joy to be able to join her in a family. And if you're here, a part of her family today, would you join us in standing? I know there's some family members to my far left over here uh, who are here to celebrate and to support her in this decision. So let's celebrate God's activity in her, in her life. Kristen, do you place your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you accepted him as your Lord? And is he now your Savior? Yes.
It's my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in his death, to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. This is Kat Thompson, and Kat Thompson made a profession of faith when she was 12 years old and was baptized, and um, as she um, grew in her life and became an adult, and she realized about four years ago that um, she needed to make a real decision. She had made a decision based on the fact that um, that's what the kids were doing then, and so she came forward a few weeks ago and said that now that she's um, nailed down her salvation, she needs to be baptized and follow Christ in obedience. Um, we spent some time next steps, next steps class, and I got to know Kat, and it was a, a good time of visiting with her. And um, Kat, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I have. I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the likeness of his resurrection.